I'm Blaze Brosnan, and I'm your host for this episode of MIR Meets. Today I'll be speaking with William Durezowitz, a Portland, Oregon-based writer and former Yale English professor, known for his books Excellent Sheep and The Death of the Artist. We'll first be discussing the ways in which student culture at elite universities may encourage conformity and stifle genuine intellectual curiosity. So, I'm going to start by asking a pretty tough question. You're known for your argument in Excellent Sheep that elite colleges uh, create a lot of boring conformist students who care more about jumping through various career hoops than they do about actually learning. What was it that you saw at Yale that made you think that? Uh, because, you know, for those who don't know, Durezowitz was a Yale professor for several years, and he based his argument in Excellent Sheep that, you know, colleges are essentially convincing students to, you know, jump through all these hoops um, instead of actually learning um, on his time at Yale. So what is it that, that, that made you think that? Well, I mean, what made me think it was well, the students I had. Um, and I shouldn't say that colleges are convincing students to do this as this is if were an active process. This is, a, this is a consequence of the admissions process. I, I don't know how things work in Canada, but in the United States, we have an, an admissions process for elite colleges that requires students not only to stuff as many advanced courses as they can into their high school schedule, but rack up a dozen or more extracurricular activities in order to demonstrate all kinds of elusive qualities that schools are known to be looking for, like leadership and service and also, you need to show them that you, you're you kind of already pointing in a specific direction. You know, you're interested in political science or you're interested in physical science or the creative arts or whatever it is. Um, and this is, be, this is kind of a credential. This is a credentials arms race that has been accelerating for decades, literally decades. Uh, so the more students do, the even more they feel they have to do. And for a long time now, it's been the case that the kinds of students who get into highly selective colleges in the United States uh, live childhoods and adolescences uh, starting, you know, really uh, not even in high school, but in middle school, if not earlier, that involves a continuous uh activity of hoop jumping, of just going from one thing to another with, with no downtime, with no time to think, like literally on uh, after school, on weekends, during the summers, you have to do clubs and teams and sports. You have to, uh, you know, yeah, have, was, uh, yeah, go, go ahead. That was certainly the case. I mean, I, I grew up partly in the U.S. and partly in Canada. My, my adolescence within the U.S. And it was certainly the case that the process, you know, which is very unique, you know, compared to other countries, you know, when we get into college, you don't need to just, you know, uh, take the standard courses and do well on standardized testing. You also need to do all these extracurriculars, um, you know, you know, start a company or something, you know, be involved in all sorts of stuff. Um, and your thesis, you know, really kind of strikes a chord with me. 
that actually leads to students uh, having much less time to learn and develop their own interests. Because if you're always thinking, okay, how is, you know, my every waking hour going to lead to this goal, basically? And how, you know, how do I kind of create myself and my personal and my extracurricular interests as someone with this goal in mind, um, you know, getting into a top college, then you're not really spending much time um, necessarily doing the things that you authentically care most about. And so in my case, like I, I read a lot of philosophy in, middle, in late middle and high school, basically. Um, I wasn't, you know, involved in the debate team. I wasn't super involved in extracurriculars. But I was reading, you know, Nietzsche and Foucault and so on and some literature, you know, like Faulkner. Um, but I couldn't put that, you know, as a major coup or achievement, right? Um, you know, because I wasn't doing anything. I was just learning, basically. Um, and of course, if you're doing extracurriculars all day, you have much less time to learn, much less time to develop yourself. So, I mean, that does strike me as basically true. Yeah. Um, there, there, uh, some years ago, there was an essay, uh, in Harvard magazine, which is like the alumni magazine by Helen Vendler, who is, uh, a renowned critic of poetry. She's really the Dean of American poetry critics, uh, for many decades now. And she was for many decades, a professor at Harvard. And she said, you know, yeah, T.S. Eliot went to Harvard but we wouldn't admit him now because he w isn't the kind of he was not the kind of young person who would have who would have done all of who would have jumped through all these hoops who would have put up with it he cared about i thought of him because i thought of this essay because you mentioned your interest in philosophy t.s Eliot cared about philosophy and he cared about poetry and that's all he cared about and like you said just sitting in your room reading isn't something you can put on a resume. I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd that this is what colleges are looking for, but uh, that's where we are, and that's where we've been for a long time. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And I guess the next question is, um, being the fact that even you know students at elite schools don't have super intellectual goals necessarily, you know, the consequence of, of the fact that college education has been massively expanded over the last 50 years. You know, so for instance, 50, 60 years ago, you know, a much more smaller portion of the population went to college. Um, and even elite colleges, you know, you got people who were either, you know, from rich families or had really intellectual goals. Um, now, even elite, the elite school admissions process is open to a much wider swath of potential applicants. And those applicants have all sorts of goals, you know, many of which aren't super intellectual. So uh, do you think it's a consequence of that kind of man massive expansion of college education and the kinds of people who might end up at elite schools? And if so, how would you remedy this, right? Because if it's not so much an issue of just the admissions process or, you know, um, uh, but actually an issue of different kinds of students going to these schools, how would you remedy that? Well, I don't, I don't agree with your premise. That is not the reason that this has happened. Okay. I mean, for one thing, um, elite American colleges back in the day were not particularly intellectual places. I'm not talking about necessarily the 50s and 60s because they had already started to reform their admissions process. But if you go back to when those, you know, most famously Harvard, Yale, and Princeton became these national, iconic national institutions, which is around the turn of the 20th century, 
um, they were very specifically not intellectual institutions. And there were even colleges being founded like Reed College in Portland, Oregon, that were specifically, explicitly uh, founded as more intellectual places as opposed to, because elite, Elite American colleges were then, and in, to a certain extent still are, primarily not intellectual institutions, but institutions in the business of forming the American elite, forming a so-called leadership class, which is much more about socialization and actually, even before socialization, selection than it is about intellectualism. And in fact, if you look at the, the history of American higher education, you said the last 50 years. In fact, American higher education... Uh, has been expanding for many, many more years than that. And one, and most famously after World War II with the GI Bill, millions of returning uh, servicemen went to college who wouldn't otherwise have gone, and millions of other students went to college as well. Uh, if, as a proxy for intellectual engagement, we look at what students were studying, we find that it was in precisely those years when college was opened in, in some ways for the first time or on a scale that had never been done before to people below the level of the upper classes, to the middle class, to the working class. That was also the heyday of the humanities and of the social sciences, of the liberal arts. That's what those people wanted to study. So it wasn't, oh, you know, these, uh, these um, yahoos from the working class who, who just, who are not interested in intellectual engagement. That's not true at all. And in fact, I don't think that intellectual engagement correlates with the class you come from at all. I mean, you say that the student body has changed at elite schools. In some ways it hasn't changed very much. I mean, it's become much more diverse in terms of demographics. It hasn't become much more diverse in terms of class. It is still overwhelmingly kids from upper class and upper middle class backgrounds. And those are the kids who are the excellent sheep. And those are the kids who are abandoning the humanities major. So much so that almost nobody takes humanities majors now. So I reject your premise. I think the problem is the admission system and also how expensive colleges have become. Because students now have less freedom to study what they're really interested in. That wasn't necessarily my premise exactly. It was just, a, just basically a question of, you know, well, the premise of your question. The premise of the question, basically. I mean, um, yeah, I wasn't so much suggesting that it's working class students who have no intellectual appetite uh, coming to college. Um, more that just that just the fact that um, you know uh, going to an Ivy League school, for instance, um, you know, um, it's become you know possible for just a wide swath of different kinds of people, basically. Um, right, but why would they be any in less intellectually interested than the than the WASP aristocracy? Well, I never, I never, I, I, I don't think the WASP aristocracy was especially intellectually interested. Okay, so what's the point of the question? The point, of, well, the, the the point of the the point of the question is essentially that, um, you know, uh, I think the goal, the goals um, since the since say the sixties and seventies, um, the goals of students, uh, you know, might so might might have changed somewhat. Uh, just because certain schools, you know, let's say, uh, target a much broader swath of students. Let's say Chicago, for instance. Like Chicago. Okay, but know, again, the the assumption is that this broader swath of students would have different goals. Well, in Chicago, it's through the case. I mean, 
Chicago, you know, made a name for itself, targeting very intellectually precocious students, you know, Hutchinson College and stuff, you know, in the 40s. Um, you know, the kinds of students who wouldn't necessarily get into to Ivy Leagues, basically. Now, their admissions process is much like an Ivy League, basically. You know, uh, Okay, so but for this, for this, for the sake of brevity, let me cut you off. First of all, Chicago is a very specific institution, okay, and it was, and it was different from all other peer institutions in exactly the way that you said. And it's true that, to my sorrow and the sorrow of many people who teach there or who used to go there, it has become essentially like every other school. Yes, but that didn't happen fifty years ago. That started maybe 10 or 20 years ago. And it isn't about enrolling a different kind of students, which is the premise of your question. It's about the fact that Chicago decided that it needed to compete with those peer institutions in a way that it hadn't done before. And that might have to do with different you know, changes in the composition of trustees or just the general sort of um, tightening of the of the demands, the felt demands of the U.S. news rankings. So, you know, back when Chicago was a place that people went to study Aristotle, it had a significantly higher admissions rate than Ivy League universities, yeah. even though the students were just as smart. There was nothing wrong with what they were doing. I think maybe they felt that, th that it, um, it caused financial problems for them. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it was just, that we, like I said, different kinds of trustees. The trustees now tend to be, you know, hedge fund jerks and tech assholes and they want to see the numbers and they don't really care about aristotle but then but i guess even, the, but again it's just one school but then i guess the question about ivy leagues then is uh you know um do you think students in say the 50s or 60s um you know 70s even uh when it was easier to get in you know um when it was easy to get in, do you think those students were necessarily more intellectually engaged than now? I mean, certainly I've heard people say that um, the quality of work uh, at Ivy Leagues have gone way up, basically, and you know, gentleman, gentleman sees type stuff in the 50s and 60s. Um, so I guess, um, you know, yeah, students today might be very interested in, you know, jumping through various hoops, um, but were students in the past really much more intellectually engaged? I mean, Okay. It wasn't the case in the Wasp aristocracy era, era they were. I don't know afterwards, but... Yeah, I said that myself, right? I said myself that the Ivy Leagues were not particularly intellectual institutions when they were the preserve of the Wasp aristocracy, which they were substantially until the 1960s when their admissions processes changed very quickly. They changed precisely to admit... I mean... This is sort of the exact opposite of the premise of your question, which was, well, now they're, they started to admit different students who are less intellectually engaged. Now you're saying the opposite, which is true. What they actually started to admit were students who were, if not more intellectually engaged and certainly more intellect academically accomplished. Were they also more intellectually engaged? I actually think they probably were. I think the 60s were a time, among other things, of... Um, of, of, of sort of general idealistic fervor and sort of intellectual engagement among students, maybe, you know, sort of for political and social reasons. But here's what happened, what has happened since then, since we shifted from aristocracy to meritocracy. What's happened is that the upper middle class, upper class families have, have figured out how to game the system. They figured out that the meritocracy is just a, is, 
is just a, a bunch of metrics, right? I mean, it's basically how you get into elite colleges is a signaling system that involves, you know, AP classes and extracurriculars and so forth. Um, and it's precisely, I would also say, because more and more families, first nationally and then internationally, started to try to get their kids into these schools, more and more people competing. Uh, so then, like I said, it becomes this credentials arms race and intellectualism gets squeezed out. Yeah. So that's what I would say. And, and the idea that students are producing better work than they used to, I mean, I don't believe that for one second. I mean, yeah, they're producing better work maybe than the kids in the 50s or the 20s. But um, we've had massive grade inflation. You know, professor, I've, I've heard from many professors who talk about how their students are much less intellectually engaged than they used to be. And I mean, they're sort of good at producing kind of generic work that will get an A or an A minus, and that once would have gotten a B or a B minus. But the yeah. real, but you know, to come across, re, you know, real, you know, work that's really original, a paper that's really interesting and well written. That's rare. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess what I was motioning to with the expansion of college is that two things could be happening at the same time, basically. I mean, it's certainly true that if you look at, like, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, tests of, like, you know, the average IQ score of, say, uh, you know, a college student, basically, my impression is that it's gone down quite a bit over the past, you know, uh, 40 years, basically, as many more students end up going to some college, basically. Um, so basically, I mean, it's true the college has been massively expanded. So all sorts of students who wouldn't have gone to college before end up going. Now you might say, well, how would that affect the Ivy Leagues, basically? Well, I'm sure it has some kind of, uh, you know, uh, trickle-down effect, basically. Why? On the culture, basically. Why? I mean, so I don't, I don't accept that at all. I mean, yes, you're right that, that the college, go college population has expanded. Of course, the whole population has expanded, but more, even a larger percentage are going. But, you know, the fact that there are more students at Arizona State and, and maybe on average are less academically capable, how does that affect what happens at Harvard? Not I mean, that wouldn't be trickle down, that would be trickle up. Well, not necessarily less academically capable. It could be... Uh, well, it they could might be... well be less academically capable. Okay? Well, they they I might well that's... be less What's culturally that? inclined. It could be a shift of cultural inclination. Basically. But how, but how does become... what happens at, a, at large public universities affect what happens at the Ivy League? Well, because I mean, so so let's 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 map this out. Basically, I mean, if you have a massive expansion of the the call, you know, the of of people going to college, basically, many people who wouldn't have gone to college who have uh, interest yeah, in yeah, yeah, I get it. Mind, um, some of those people might be very smart and they might be very good at jumping through hoops, basically, um, good enough to get into a top school, basically, but they might have might be interested in some kind of career that you know. Uh, you know, would have barely required a college education in the 40s or 50s, like, I don't know, some kind of finance thing, you know, until maybe 60 years ago, um, some of those people just wouldn't have gone to college, basically. I mean, so it's a matter of, of, of a shifting, if it, if it, what it could be is that, you know, uh, the massive expansion of college has created a shift in cultural inclination, basically, um, where people feel like, okay, I need this thing as a credential, basically, to get on with my life. Rather than, you know, I'm doing it, um, you know, for some more intellectual reason. And that kind of mindset could filter up to Ivy Leagues as well. I don't really think that's what's happening. Okay. Yeah, I, don't, um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's what's happening. I don't think that the people going to the Ivy League are people who in an earlier generation wouldn't have gone to college at all. 
I think the reason I, for the decline in intellectual engagement at top schools is what we've already talked about. Okay. Um, yeah. And then, so so just to move on, um, wrote in your book, uh, you wrote your book, Excellent Sheep, uh, before what many observe as kind of a major rise in politically correct, you know, or intolerant attitudes to dissenting views on campus. How do you think the wave we've seen of increased uh, political, you know, uh, kind of uh, kind of left wing social intolerance? How would that impact your argument? How does it enrich it in certain ways, maybe? Right. So that's a good question. Um, and and um, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because, in some ways, it seemed that the that the political, the new political zeal on campuses. Um, ran counter to some of what I talked about in Excellent Sheep, which among other things was kind of political disengagement, which had been true for many years among college students. Um, ultimately, though, I, I think the two phenomena are congruent, excellent sheephood and, for lack of a better word, wokeness, or what we would have called political correctness. Um, ultimately, I think for elite college students, the new ideological fervor is a way of concealing in the first instance from themselves what are still the same selfish, individualistic, careerist values. It's a kind of moral fig leaf. I think also because education had become so um, devoid of any values higher than making money, and that was both true both for students and for institutions, it was very easy for it to be colonized by a movement that claimed to be full, that is in a sense full of moral fervor. In other words, it provided moral content or any kind of higher content for an education that had been devoid of that content. But as I'm suggesting, I don't think that it's actually changed anything about these students or how they lead their lives. It might change a bit of how they behave while they're on campus. It might change the words they've used, the words they use. But really, wokeness has been absorbed by the meritocracy as just a new kind of cultural style. And in fact, at this point, I have a friend who works at an elite university who said this very beautifully. He said that the students who get to them, if they're good at one thing, they're good at hacking the meritocracy. In other right. words, they're good at they're good at reverse engineering what the grown-ups want. So they're going to make the right kind of talk on their application essays in their high school and college classrooms, but it's just become another thing that they cynically produce, just like they do 12 different extracurricular activities because they know it's what the grown-ups want. I mean, I think what I mean, another kind of additional point I'd add to that is that a lot of what, you know, a kind of, you know, quote-unquote woke ideology preaches is uh, a kind of identity-based narcissism. And it does so for, you know, a vast variety of groups of people, even many white people who claim, you know, certain marginalized identities, basically. And so, you know, as opposed to 60s activism, which was largely about, you know, act, you know uh, acting in favor of kind of ecumenical social justice causes, you know, civil rights for African-Americans, most of those students weren't black. Um, you know, um, you know, sexual liberation, uh, whereas today, you know, there's a kind of more cloistered 
identity-based narcissism, basically. And I think that's kind of congruent with uh, the kind of careerism and selfishness, you know, you describe in Excellent Sheep, you know. If students are very interested, just, just you know, have a drive above all for self-advancement, um, you know, uh, and a kind of very shallow kind of self-advancement, then I think they might naturally gravitate towards uh, shallow forms of political activism, you know, based on, you know, identity grievances, basically. I think that that's astute. I think that that's right. And it's, and, and you put your finger on something interesting, something important, which is that activism in the sixties was often, not always, but often on behalf of other people in the name of a kind of universal justice. And activism now is very much activism for me, for my group. Um, and also, it's also very intramural in the literal sense of the word within the walls, right? I mean, in the 60s, college students or some college students, you know, got on buses and went to the South at the risk of limb and sometimes even life to register black voters. Um, now it's all happening on the campus and it's often just about the campus, right? So you're protesting a statue or you're protesting a speaker. You're not actually doing anything about in or for the larger world. No, or even the video I was thinking of was actually from Yale University itself after you left. But, you know, the whole thing with uh, Erica Christakis, I think, sent out some email about Halloween costumes, basically, you know, which criticized I mean, some kind of Yale uh, guideline on offensive costumes. And, you know, I'm not going to get in, get on that issue. You know, I, I'm not going to take a stand on any of these issues. But the students who were protesting. You know, this very anodyne email, they were protesting uh, her husband, Nicholas Christakis, actually, who defended her. And they were saying, you know, it's a kind of a emo very strong emotion. You know, what you're saying doesn't make me feel safe on this campus. I don't feel safe. You know, it wasn't about any kind of general cause. It was about uh, a sense of personal safety and a sense of personal safety from opposing views, basically. And... So that's kind of what I was thinking of when I, when I uh, you know, made that argument, basically. Yeah, I think that's a great example. That happened in the fall of 2015, and it was kind of the starting gun for this new era of campus activism. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And then do you think, um, do you think academics themselves bear any responsibility for the atmosphere of careerism and conformity at elite universities? Because they're not in charge of the admissions process. Um, what, and what can they do to make it better, if, if so? Uh, you know, I'm not sure they can do anything. I mean, the, the, the truth is that um, faculty at elite schools, uh, especially the universities, as opposed to the liberal arts colleges, but even the liberal arts colleges, are quite disengaged from the admissions process. The two things are yeah. not connected at all. Um, are they responsible... You know, I mean, they are themselves careerists and conformists in their own way. Um, I don't, ex and and all, and often their own narcissism, as well as their own detachment from actual teaching, leads them to be blind to what's really going on with their students. Um, it could be possible for professors to get together and pressure their administration to do things differently. That is actually something that happened at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton in the early 20th century because professors were tired of teaching so many idiots. 
and they did force their schools to start to have somewhat more rigorous admissions practices. It wasn't like the 60s, but they started to use the SATs, I think in the 20s or, it was either the 20s or the 30s. Um, I doubt very much the professors are gonna do that, um, but they could. I mean, I, I just, what I, what I do observe though, is that there is some symmetry between the process you describe among students and the mindset among, increasingly among humanities academics themselves. You know, uh, previously, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't as important. You didn't need to have as many publications to get a job, right? Now it's very, very difficult to get a job and that in academia, and then it involves stuffing your CV with as many publications as possible. Um, and it often comes, comes at the cost of substantive work, especially in the humanities, for instance. Um, and so, I mean, I think it certainly seems to me uh, that you see, you know, probably an atmosphere of increased, you know, certainly conformity politically, you know, reflected in, you know, uh, the political views for the, of the professor class, you know, are increasingly, you know, uh, you know, homogenous, basically, than they were 30, 40 years ago. Um, but also a sense of conformity academically in terms of just trying to publish as much as possible as opposed to doing that kind of transcendent work. Yeah, look, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, the excellent sheepdom that I describe among high school and college students is not does not exist in isolation. Um, basically, students are being prepared for adulthood. They're being prepared for an adulthood that's increasingly, that involves an increasingly frenetic accumulation of credentials and production of small bore work, whether you're an academic or you're in finance or whatever, right? So in other words, this is what adult life is like now too. Um, these, this generation of academics, the probably the last two, three generations of academics were produced by the same system. They're still doing what they were doing in college. Um, one way to look at all this is this is a kind of new uh, managerialism. Now, I mean, new as again, several decades old. I mean, of the kind that David Graeber used to write about. This new managerialism where everyone and not just college students is busy checking boxes in order to satisfy accountability metrics that are coming down from a, a sort of newly expanded and empowered managerial class, whether at the university or anywhere else. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and then um, you make a couple class-based arguments in Excellent Sheep. So, you know, for one, you argue that top universities, they had to increasingly focus on racial diversity as opposed to class-based diversity. So what would be gained from increased, increased class diversity at elite universities. Um, and do you think, um, do you think increased class diversity might actually lessen some of the repressive speech codes? Because these kind of speech codes on campus that I think develop, you know, partly after Excellent Sheep was written, they tend to exist in a very, they tend to rely on a very homogenous environment where everyone is you know, familiar with a certain jargon or lingo, basically. And so do you think, yeah, do you think class diversity, increased class diversity would ameliorate that? And would ameliorate the kind of conformity among students, among, among upper middle class and wealthy students that you see in general now. Yeah, I think again, I think that's a very good point. Um, it's I should say it's not that they've the schools now focus on race as opposed to class. They've never there's never been an interest in class diversity. Uh, racial diversity has been a goal that 
that they've been pursuing for more than 50 years. I mean, affirmative action started in the late 60s. Um, there's been more and more racial diversity in recent years, uh, especially with the rise of, of Asian American student or just Asian student populations. Um, but there's never been an interest in class diversity. And you're right that uh, there's such intellectual conformity because there's so such social homogeneity. I should actually say that the demographics are what people call barbell demographics. So two big lumps at either end, actually one big lump at one end and one smaller lump at the other. And the big lump is the upper middle class. And it's not just white, it's white and Asian, and even a substantial number of black and brown students from the upper middle class. One problem with race-based affirmative action, especially at elite schools, is that most of the black and brown students you're admitting um, are, not, are, are from comfortable backgrounds. And most, or at least many of them, are not even descendants of American slaves. They may be international students from Africa or the Caribbean or the children of African or Caribbean immigrants. Um, Class-based, and, uh, and then the smaller lump are the, you know, relatively small number of poor students or lower class students, working class and poor students who are overwhelmingly students of color. Uh, about 40% of the United States is working class white people. 40%, it's the largest demographic group. Um, almost completely unrepresented at elite colleges because when they, when they do look for poor students, it's almost always black and brown students because they're looking to satisfy uh, that demographic desire. What would happen if we had a student body that was truly demographically representative and 40% of students at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Stanford came from the white working class that would be an interesting situation now, wouldn't it? And you would have a lot more intellectual and political diversity. It would just change campus completely. It's never gonna happen. That's one of the reasons it's never gonna happen, but you're right. Yeah, it's definitely the case when I think even things are going you know, further in the other direction, basically. I mean, you know, for all the concern with representation of you know, every group, basically, I think I, I, some of the recent data I've seen from Ivy Leagues suggests that, um, you know, uh, white, even white, white students as a whole, not just to say working class white students, um, are, um, you know, are now the most underrepresented group, actually, at, you know, uh, say Princeton, you know, maybe not Princeton, but say Harvard, for instance. I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, I've seen stats reflecting that the Princeton and Harvard student body um, you know, the 20, class of 2026 or whatever, they tend to be around 30, 40% white max, basically. And those are high-end statistics, basically. Um, you know, kind of high-end high ballpark estimates of what I read on my part. Um, so they bend, over, now, they bend over backwards to admit, you know, uh, um, as many Latinos and Asians as our proportional representative increasingly. Starting not Asians, uh, uh, African-Americans as a representative increasingly and Asians get in on, you know, on meritocracy basically and no discrimination against them. Um, but that doesn't apply for whites basically. And so now you have a situation where whites are underrepresented at a lot of elite schools, which is fine. But as you say, that basically leads to, you know, no working class white students basically. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I actually don't care about 
racial representation. It is exactly. white if whites are underrepresented, so be it. What's even worse is that because there are fewer and fewer whites, more and more of the whites who are there are there because they're athletes or legacies, which means they're not really academically up to standard. Um, I would like to see schools enroll uh, classes that are uh, on the basis of academic merit at, with, with some class-based affirmative action. That's what I would like to see. And if you end up with a student body that's half Asian, so be it. And that yeah. means they deserve to be there. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, that wasn't what I was suggesting. What I was I, suggesting I'm not saying it was what you were suggesting. I'm yeah. adding to what you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and by the way, the one school that does things almost entirely on merit, there actually is, they actually give an admissions preference to women, is Caltech. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. what I would think, yeah. Caltech, it's purely numbers, but so that, I mean, like two out of three people who apply are, are boys, so they do put the thumb on the scales for girls, so they have a somewhat balanced student body. But other than that, as I understand it, they don't have affirmative action. And, you know, it's a very Asian school. But yeah. it's also a school, it's a small school that's produced a lot of Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and then, um, so what do you think about the argument that your uh, opposition to uh, kind of aggressive careerism among, among students um, and emphasis on kind of concrete box-ticking achievements as opposed to learning itself might reflect an elitist perspective? So traditionally, the liberal arts education you advocate, you know, was primarily geared towards educating a small elite who didn't have to worry much about money. Basically. Yeah, again, I really need to cut you off because this is just for the sake of time. This is the argument that that everybody makes, and it's wrong. It's okay. wrong. As I said before, first of all, as I said before, in the post-war decades, lots of working and middle-class students were studying the liberal arts by choice, okay? One out of five students in the 60s were humanities majors. Now it's one out of 20. Second of all, if you look at how people talked about higher education, I don't mean just people, I mean the people in charge. In the United States, Certainly throughout the 20th century, especially in the post-war period, they talked about the liberal arts as an essential education for everyone, as the basis of a democratic society. It, there was a famous Harvard report called The Red Book because it came out in a book with red covers. Uh, the real title is Education in a Free Society. This was in the late 40s. Also in the late 40s, there was the, the Truman Commission report right, Truman was president, and the Truman Commission report had a title something like uh, Higher Education in, for a Democratic Society, something like that. So this idea that the liberal arts were the preserve of the, of the it, it's just, it just isn't true. Yes, it, it, it isn't true. What, what matters, though, is whether all students have the leisure to study it, to study the, the liberal arts, meaning how expensive is college? I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, you could have one out of five college students major in the humanities in the 60s is that college was, if not free, then very inexpensive at public universities. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. And then I'm going to segue. Um, so from that topic, and that was a very fascinating discussion. So thank you. I'm going to segue from that topic to um, uh, some questions about, uh, actually, first, I want to ask you. Just a couple of questions as an aside, basically. But that kind of relate to what we were talking about, you know, this kind of phenomenon 
of careerism and box ticking as opposed to actual authenticity, but played out in the literary arts, basically. Gonna ask you some questions about the novel over the past 50 years, because it's reading over your work, and I've noticed you've written a lot of literary criticism. And so, uh, I guess my first question about this is, um, you know, do you think it's possible that the kind of impact of the postmodern turn in post-war American literature um, was deleterious in certain ways for, for art in general, basically? I mean, because um, to me, at least, when I read like, uh, you know, uh, you know, Don DeLillo, for instance, you know, very acclaimed writer, um, there seems to be kind of an obscurantism there that acts at the expense of kind of genuine authenticity. And if you're talking about, you know, reading art that's transcendent, that shakes you emotionally, um, where you understand some kind of, you know, underlying theme for the benefit, betterment of humanity, it seems a lot of this postmodern literature, you know, that emphasizes like very obscure plots, you know, multiple narrators, um, you know, kind of uh, meta references, uh, there can be a tendency away from authenticity there and a tendency more towards writing in this very rarefied and obscurantist style. So do you think, uh, you know, uh, what's your, your position on the impact of postmodern novel on American art? Yeah, I don't agree with you uh, for multiple reasons. Um, first of all, postmodernism, you know, DeLillo, Pynchon, Gaddis, maybe you want to throw in David Foster Wallace, a few other people. That was just one strain in postwar fiction. And it's not even, it's a strain that petered out a long time ago. I mean, there are tons and tons and tons of other important novelists who had nothing to do with that. Sure. I mean, these are the writers who grow out, really, they grow out of Joyce. Second of all, I mean, you're, you know, you're using word authenticity that can be understood in many different ways. Um, some of the stuff, some of that postmodern stuff, a lot of it I haven't read. Some of what I've read, I've liked very much. And to me, it, in its own way, uh, you know, captures the human. It's just a different way of doing it and maybe with a different understanding of what the human is becoming. I, I don't have a problem with that kind of approach to fiction per se. I mean, yeah, I mean, it can become kind of, as you say, obscurantist, but you know, I like difficult work if it's good, but fundamentally this is not the main, by any means, the main story in American fiction over the last 80 years. It's not, and it's not really even much of a story at all. Anymore. I mean, if anything, I think there's been a, a move back from kind of the Joycean tradition of experimentation for, I think, for commercial reasons to a kind of safe sort of uh, naive realism. Yeah, certainly over the past 20 years, that's been the case. Um, I was just curious because that's because it's a pet peeve of mine. And I'm a huge fan of James Joyce and Vladimir Nabokov, you know, two of the kind of progenitors of this approach. I just, you know, I took an English class a while back. I didn't necessarily like the way it went, basically. Um, but that is just one one strain, as you said, basically. Um, I loved I loved Delillo, and I love I mean to the, the 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 ones that I've read, and I I love David Foster Wallace. I mean, I know a lot a lot of people like to dump on him in now. I think Infinite Jest is a great novel, and it's a great novel because you know it's it's its techniques are used to get at something very human. 
When we, and then uh, what do you think about, I'm going to ask you a couple more literary questions, but specific books I've either read or a friend of mine has read. Um, you, wrote, you wrote very critically at one point of uh, uh, Karl Ove Knausgaard's uh, My Struggle, um, you know, books, basically, um, which for those who don't know, are, you know, Norwegian autofictions, basically, autofiction being a kind of writing where uh, writers write uh, semi-autobiographical confessional works, basically, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, inheritors of kind of like Marcel Proust, remembrance of things past, that kind of stuff in the modern era. You're very scathing about Knausgaard. Um, so what is your issue with Knausgaard, and where do you think of the trend of autofiction more generally? Well, I think Knausgaard's really boring. I think my struggle is just really boring. I mean, you know, it's six long volumes. It's it's clearly trying to be a new Proust. Yeah. But he wrote them very fast. I mean, he wrote like the first four hundred page volume in three months. So it's 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 an it's a numbingly detailed account of certain, you know, hours or days in his contemporary life or his childhood, but rendered with his very, very flat detail. Uh, just kind of an enumeration of the surface of things. No real, no compression, no metaphor, and also no psychological or social insight. So he became a, a cause celeb among a, a lot of readers. I'm not going to question their motives. A lot of novelists who I respect thought he was the greatest thing in the world. Um, I, I, and I, you know... I think in recent years, there's been a movement to kind of, uh, it, not just of autofiction, which is really just a fancy word for autobiographical fiction, but um, against invention, against fiction, uh, as if fiction were, to use a version of the word used before, inauthentic, you know, to make stuff up. And I, I think that's idiotic. Um, as for autofiction more generally, I, I I haven't read enough to make generalizations. And even if I had, I'm not sure I would make those generalizations. I'm not sure there are generalizations to be made. Um, I, ben Lerner is often cited as somebody who practices autofiction, and I think he's one of the best writers around. So, you know, like postmodernism or the, you know, the postmodern kind of novel, it all depends on what you do with it. Yeah, that's very that's very interesting. I haven't read too much autofiction myself, but I have a European friend who's a huge fan, and uh, I kind of consulted with him on this, th that question. The one question I have about a book that I have read, or I've read most of at least, I'm reading it now, is you have some very interesting thoughts on uh, Roberto Bolaño's novel uh, 2666, because while you champion Bolaño, it was super high opinion of him, um, as I do too, um, you... Um, you're kind of skeptical. You you think two six six is a little overrated, at least in the sense I get from from the review you wrote of it. Um, you think he doesn't tie, um, you know, the various threads together in the book. Basically, I mean, he doesn't tie the sections, the, the four books of two six 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 together, um, and that he also it's not a morally coherent work. And that's actually a very interesting criticism. And if possible, could you elaborate on that? Um. It's been a long time since I wrote that review. It's been, I think, 11 years. So I don't remember specifically enough what I said about 2666 
to respond to what you're saying. Um, yeah, I think, yes, I, I, I mean, I think the parts are brilliant. I'm beginning to remember now. The parts are brilliant as they always are with him. He was a remarkable writer and spirit and even just his story and you know everything was published posthumously, at least in English and so on and so forth. Um, but I think 2666, which is an, an enormous book, uh, is, yeah, it's going in too many different directions. And I think it's, they, they you know, they, it's, it's centrifugal. The, 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 the pieces kind of fly apart and I think add up to less, you know, they don't, they don't have a, a like a unifying emotional impulse. Yeah, I mean, uh, as opposed to his, as opposed to his other major work, which is long but not quite as long, called the Savage Detectives, which I think is uh, really a remarkable work. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I, and I kind of agreed with you on is that I think uh, I think a sort of contradiction Bolaño is that um, you know he's he's right he writes about such dark subjects, right? I mean, you know, two six six six. You know, part of it is just you know. Uh, description of these extraordinary, like, brutal murders in every detail. And yet his morality um, about the world, very idealistic, very humanitarian, very utopian. Um, and, I mean, it almost comes off a little bit, his morality, you know, a little bit trite at some point, you know, as if he's, a, you know, an idealistic young man, you know, uh, who's emotionally, you know, upset by every 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 little injustice he sees and wants things to do uh, uh, to be better, basically. And in a certain way, that seemed a little bit incongruous with just the uh, uh, the kind of brute nihilism, just by the tone of the book. I mean, you look at a writer like Flannery O'Connor, for instance, you know, who's a moralist, but she's a sense of humanity as as fallen, basically, and that foregrounds. Um, you know, who kind of, uh, you know, uh, detours into the grotesque. Um, Bolaño doesn't view humanity as fallen, essentially. In fact, he's quite hopeful, and yet his book has an apocalyptic tone. So, I mean, I think the morality of the book's a little incoherent, although I love the book itself. Okay, I mean, I, I didn't, again, maybe I'm just not remembering. I don't, I don't remember where Bolaño expresses hope for humanity or idealism. I mean, he was, as I understand it, he was a committed leftist. So he, he believed in, you know, some kind of improvability or some possibility. But I don't think that that's inconsistent with seeing the world as it is. I'm, I'm not sure he's, you know, you say every little injustice. I mean, he's dealing with some very large injustices, um, whether it's the femicides in Ciudad Juarez, or in a, in, a, in other books, you know the the right wing juntas in South America. I mean, these are not small things. So, I was thinking more of the fairly minor ones um, in the first book of two six six six. I mean, I mean, I just it's more just that uh, I think he is hopeful. Um, you know, um, I think I, I, mean, I think it's just interesting the kind of the, the the connection between the hopefulness and the grotesque, basically, because certain writers. Like Celine and and Flannery O'Connor, who went down a similar route, didn't have that sense of hopefulness really at all. And where I mean, again, I, I may just not be remembering, but where do you see the hopefulness? Well, I mean, I, I, um, it's it's difficult to say exactly. Um, 
You know, I think, um, well, for one, for one, I think, I, I think it's, it's not hopefulness and idealism, basically. Um, you know, um, the sorts of forms of injustice he comments on, you know, the kinds of injustice, you know, a young student activist would comment on, you know, um, you know, in addition to commenting on, you know, horrific brutalities, you know, Nazism, uh, you know, femicides, he also talks about more, uh, um, you know, day-to-day forms of, you know, sexism or class-based oppression, you know, for instance, um, you know, in a way that, um, you know, in a way seems, you know, idealistic. Like, he wants us to do better in a certain sense. And he thinks the world should be free of even these minor, these, these uh, you know, smaller forms of injustice. Like, for example, the commentary on, on you know, uh, academic hypocrisy in uh, the first book, the part about the, the, part about the critics, basically. Um, and the part well, of the it, critics is a fairly hopeful ending in itself. I mean, you know... Um, uh, Liz, Elizabeth marries uh, marries uh, Marini, uh, dates uh, falls in love with Marini. Um, you know the old, you know, kind of crippled uh, professor, basically, and uh, the other two are kind of left in the lurch. There's something kind of whimsical about it. Well, I mean, you know, you consider the you should consider the possibility that this is, you know, he's inhabiting a genre. You know, I mean, to to identify. To to identify this with his, you know, uh, to see this as as evidence that he has this hopeful view of life, because in the first part of twenty six sixty six, he's writing an. I mean, it's an academic satire, and there's a there's a there's a genre of academic satire, and there's a genre of you know the romance novel. So, you know, yeah, what, you know, what, I mean, certainly there are very there are plenty of aspects that strike against hopefulness, basically, in two six six six. Right? I mean. You know, the world seems to have been made. Okay, again, again, you haven't really convinced me that, no, he has many hopeful, aspects that he has a hopeful view of existence. I'm saying there are many aspects that struck against it as well. You know, you haven't convinced me that he has a hopeful view of existence. And I think that there's no contradiction between wanting an end to injustice, small or large, and a grimly realistic view of human nature. Yeah. And, so I, and, and you also seem to imply that the concern with petty injustices is something that would be characteristic of a young idealist. I mean, 2666 was released after his death. He was 51 when he died. Yeah, I'm aware. So it's not like he wrote it when he was 23. Yeah, I'm aware. I'm very aware of that. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm aware of that. All I'm saying is that, sure, you know, the book on the surface seems very brutal and nihilistic, basically. Um, you know, but I found certain aspects of it a little bit idealistic and certain aspects of his moral approach, you know, maybe characteristic of a kind of innocence of temperament, basically, that one doesn't find in writers who write about smooth subjects like uh, Flannery O'Connor, for instance. Um, you know, and I think that's an interesting uh, tension in his work. I mean, I, I think it's a tension. Maybe you don't see it, but that's just... I just opinion. don't see a lot of innocence in his work. I mean, again, I think that first part of 2666 is written in the mode of academic satire. So the plot is going to follow those generic conventions, or at least it's going to play with those generic conventions. I mean, I just don't remember, you know, I actually, yeah. when I when I wrote that review, I read all of his stuff. It was like 3,000 pages. I think a few things have been published since then that I haven't read. But it was like 10 or 12 books, and I don't remember a lot of hopefulness. Yeah, I remember a little bit. And then... Um... 
Finally, uh, so you wrote a book recently called The Death of the Artist, arguing that, you know, uh, kind of recent more commercial uh, developments like digital, you know, the, the digital marketplace, um, you know, the subscriber economy and so on, um, have kind of a strangled art basically made it difficult for artists to make a living, um, you know, and sort of erased the bohemian lifestyle basically. So what kind of pressures do artists face today? That they haven't faced in the past. Well, look, um, for several centuries now, not always, as people will sometimes say, but for several centuries, um, you know, artists have had a tough time making a living. And artists, you know, we're also talking about musicians and writers and so forth. I mean, ever since um, art was art became part of the capitalist marketplace which was actually a very good thing for art in a lot of ways, but it also meant this, this intense competition and always more people. I mean, the reason, there's a great book that came out about 20 years ago uh, by a Dutch guy who is both an artist and an economist, and it's called Why Are Artists Poor? And he says a lot of interesting things in the book, but, but the answer to his title question boils down to artists are poor because they're too many. And there are too many because so many are delusional. So there's always much more supply than there is demand. So that's why we've had this stereotype of the starving artist. Um, there were artists who could make a good living, especially, again, the years after World War II brought changes to the arts economy that made those artists, those relatively few artists who were successful, meaning just that they worked in their field, they were full time, they, rec they were recognized, they were credentialed. Um, you know, you could have a middle class life. Um, you could make a living writing novels, you could make a living releasing albums. Uh, the internet has completely knocked the props out from under that economy. Um, mainly, by, well, by doing two things, demonetizing content, right? We all get our music and our writing and everything else for free or for a very low subscription cost, which means that there's just less money going, much less money going to artists. And then the other problem is that as many delusional wannabes as there were before the internet, now there are 10 or 50 times as many. Uh, so the kind of artist who would have made a decent middle-class living, not rich, but enough to support themselves and maybe even support a family, uh, can't do that anymore. They're really living on the mark, you know, a subsistence existence now. Um, the arts are still generating a lot of money, um, but it may be even as much as they used to. It's just, it, they're generating it for the tech platforms and the artists are getting almost nothing. Yeah, and we see this, I think another thing also is that, um, you know, uh, the distributions of income among artists have probably become increasingly lopsided, at least in relation to the past 50 years. You know, if you look at, like, um, this is not a specifically art, but, you know, journalistic writing, for instance. Um, you know, uh, it used to be that, you know, the Washington Post and New York Times, you know, still employs plenty of people, you know, fewer than they did before, but plenty of people. Um, and though there was some, you know, the salaries were fairly compressed, basically, you know, uh, the top, top writers, you know, uh, may have made like 400K or something, let's say. And, you know, the bottom writers, you know, the average writer, you know, 
maybe let's say 100, basically. So kind of artificially compressed. Where are you getting those numbers from? Oh, just rough, just rough, uh, rough, rough salaries, basically. From where? I mean, I, li- I literally could not tell you how much a New York Times journalist makes or how much they made 30 years ago. And I've I'm heard of a little heart- skeptical that any of them make 400. I mean, I don't know, maybe Tom Friedman does. Yeah, they pay Tom. Uh, yeah. I, I, where are you getting the numbers from? Rough ballpark estimates, basically. From where? I mean, how? On what basis are you estimating? Well, I know. Uh, I know, um, well, I know the Washington Post was paying Taylor Lorenz, um, oh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but, uh, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, Howard Kurtz, I think, was making, you know, a, maybe 500, 500K deal at some website, I mean, Glenn Greenwald was paid 500 by the Inter- Intercept, which is a small company, but, but it was his company, right? It wasn't his, no, he didn't own it. Pierre okay, Macar- whatever, I've never seen any of these numbers, but to cut to the chase, yes, you're right. Okay. Uh, but now with like Substack, for instance. Yes, yes. In the content generation business, okay. In other words, people who sell digital content through the internet or or just the internet in general, actually, it runs on what they call a power law distribution. Yes. Meaning that the big get bigger and the small get smaller. So one easy statistic to cite is that back in the 80s, uh, 80% of revenue in the music business went to 20% of acts, which is pretty lopsided. Now, 80% of revenue in the music business goes to 1% of the acts, 1%. And that's how it is across, you know, you know, yeah, certainly Substack, uh, podcasting, right? I mean, there's over 3 million podcasts now. The number that generate enough revenue for one person to live decently, I doubt, I I would guess it's way less than one percent of those three million podcasts. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, what I'm saying, yeah, increased uh, increasing lopsided distribution, basically. That's right. You know, it's on Substack, the blockbuster effect. You know, writers are making millions of dollars on Substack, basically. A few, so, a few writers, a few writers, a few, but the rest, you know, make almost nothing, basically. That's right. Um, whereas it used to be more compressed, basically, among journalists, at least. Um. And so, and then the final question I have is, um, do you think uh, shifts in shifts in culture are also in part to blame for the decline of the artist? So kind of like excellent sheep type stuff. Do you think millennials have abandoned the anti-commercial and bohemian spirit that made the art of previous generations great? Well, I wouldn't say that millennials abandoned that spirit. I... I... I think that these changes have been coming for a long time, right? So it's, you know, there was the, we talk about, we can think about the old way before the internet, but there really were, there was an old, old way and there was a new old way. Meaning that starting in the 70s, the, the, the corporations of the culture industry started to consolidate. So you had all these, for example, little publishers, you know, Scribner's and Farrar Strauss and so on and so forth. And conglomerates started to gobble them up along with Hollywood studios and magazines and uh, record labels. So now we have three big record labels. We have five big publishers and probably soon to be four big publishers, possibly. Um, So that commercialization has been going on for decades and I wouldn't blame it on a generation. Um, I think people are responding, you know, I think consumers of art are responding to the environment in which the art gets created. Yeah. 
And then you also talked, you have some interesting asides early in your book. I didn't read the whole thing, but I read the beginning part where you talk about the decline of the indie music scene um, a little bit. And you talk about, you know, uh, you interview, I think, Ian McKay from Minor Threat and uh, Kim Dio from the Pixies. And mm-hmm. I found that especially interesting as an alternative music fan myself. Well, I mean, they just would you didn't ask a question, but what they talked to me about was that there was this great age, great age. I mean, there was a, there was an age of the indie label in the nineties where there was this proliferation as a result of the commercialization that I just, uh, I talked about, right. Uh, you know, when there's consolidation, uh, and, and places that used to do interesting work like Atlantic records or, Scribner's, the publishing house, you know, Max Perkins, who discovered and edited Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Thomas Wolfe, when that gets sucked into some giant media conglomerate and becomes too commercialized, there's going to be a proliferation at the margin of indie labels and small publishers and small magazines and so forth. But the internet has destroyed the ability of those places to uh, to support themselves, we've just had just recently we had this we've had this big fallout in sort of new media, right? Like Vice and BuzzFeed News and so they're forth. They're collapsing. Yeah, they're collapsing because they don't have a business model because all the money goes to the platforms. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's excellent. Um, okay. Uh, thank you for your time. I guess uh, we'll end it there. Um, yeah. Okay, good, vigorous discussion. Yeah, good discussion. Yeah, thanks. Uh, very, uh, I feel like we had, uh, you know, uh, very, very intense discussion. You're very willing to say when you disagree, which is an, uh, an asset. That's me. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, okay, everyone, I'm Blaze Brosnan. That was William Durezowitz on MIR Meets. <laughs>